Good morning, good morning, Rabbi Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is uh, dedicated by uh, Rafi and Noam Katan in honor of Rabbi Fahi and his Kehillah as a Hakarat Atol for the warm welcome and his amazing Shurim and for the Refuash Nema Hazak Baruch. I don't make these uh, ones up, thank you. I really appreciate that. That's such nice and warm words. I also want to thank our Kehillah for being such a warm and welcoming place. And that's how people feel when they come visit. Baruch Hashem. Also, for and for the breakfast of the class dedicated for speedy and complete for Ezra Ben Senor. And he sent me a Kadosh Baruch who granted him a speedy Inshallah, sponsored, sponsored anonymously. Uh, also, the learning for this entire week is dedicated by the Torah Center founders, Pauline and Soliasa. Dedicated in honor of our parents, Cham Joseph and Norma Asa, and Tudi Misri and Eddie Misri, Ezabi Victoria Lava Shalom. Uh, finally, the week of COVID was sponsored by David E. Ash in honor of you, and your substantial capacity to do good today and every day. My friends, I want to uh, uh, bring uh, a beautiful little midrash that I think is, uh, uh, is spoken about and, and is uh, focused on in such a fantastic way, and it really opens up our eyes as well to the way that we, uh, we ourselves interact with this information in our, uh, in our own world. Says the Sefer, says the, uh, the, uh, the Midrash, the Pasuk says that God told Moshe Rabbeinu that what will happen, um, uh, Moshe, Moshe says, so says God, um, around midnight, I'm going to go out in the land of Egypt, and every firstborn is going to die, and uh, da 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 and, uh, and in fact, that's actually what happens. Like the Pasuk tells us later that when <coughs> that moment came, in bait asher in shamet, there was no house that did not have someone who had passed away. The commentators point out that what does it mean, in bait asher in shamet? What do you mean? Let's say there was a house that the firstborn son uh, died young, years ago, so there's no firstborn. Let's say there's a house where the firstborn moved out and built his own house. So how could the Torah say, en bait, asher en shamet? So some people answer simply, al derech apshat, that your house is not your geographical space, this room, these four walls, you know, etc., etc. But if Barmanan, his son, moved out of his house and uh, died down the block, that's bait asher yesh shamet. There's a death in that home. That's the simple pshat. However, Al Chachamim say that when there was no bechor in the picture, the next one dies. Adin is pointing out as well. There's a firstborn of the animal. So even if the firstborn son's not there, there's still death of a firstborn in this home. The devastation was unbelievable. Our rabbis tell us that uh, when this happens, when the moment strikes, Paro is running through the streets of Egypt screaming, Tzayata, leave you and all the people that you're with. And in the Torah, the letter Tzadi is, in a, is a big letter Tzadi. And the Chachamim explained that Paro's scream of leave echoed throughout the entire country of Egypt. He was screaming so loudly. And it was a, an, a miracle that God even, uh, so to speak, uh, uh, made, made the sound of the voice 
amplified even louder. So my friends, in this chaos, against this backdrop of chaos, of loss, of sorrow, I want to hold up this Pasuk and what we learn from it and just show how almost ludicrous, how insane this Pasuk is. The Pasuk says, And Moshe said to Paro, Around midnight, I'm going to go through Egypt. Why? Rashi says, why does Moshe use those words? Not bachatzot at midnight, kachatzot around midnight. The answer is because for God, it was going to be exactly midnight. Only God could discern the exact split second uh, of space, which was the exact midway point down to the nanosecond of where the night was split in two, where there was equal parts before and after of night, chatzot, half of the night. However, what Moshe was worried about is that this Egyptian guy is looking at his watch, he's looking at his moon dial, okay, that he has strapped to his wrist, okay, he's looking at the watch and he says, ah, it's midnight, nothing happened. Moshe Badai, Moshe is a liar. So it's going to be off by a quarter of a second, half a second, two seconds. And what's going to happen? A scream the likes you never heard is going to go out through Egypt. The people are yelling. Everybody's dying. And what's going to happen, Moshe says? You know what the people will say? Moshe's a liar. You said midnight. It was 12 o'clock and two seconds. You're a liar. What is the likelihood of that occurring? Could you imagine the guy's going to run to Moshe holding his dead kid? You, you said, ha, 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 holding the kid you know, with a shovel. Could be on his way to bury him. Just I wanted to stop in, Moshe. Well, the funeral procession stopped at the door of Moshe. To knock at the door, Moshe, we're on our way. We thought it was important to let you know that you're a liar. Because you said chatzot, and it said wasn't chatzot. What is the... What is the likelihood of this taking place? Surely the proof is in the pudding. My friends, Rashi does not, the Chachamim do not make mistakes. That's not, it's not that that's the case. If Moshe had to say kachatzot, because if he said bachatzot, he'd be called a liar, then that's what would have happened. The question is, the question is, how could such a thing be? How could human nature be that way? So I want to take a look um, with you together at this before we look at ourselves. Famous story with, um, with uh, Rochaim, uh, Rochaim Velozhin. One of the students in his, in his uh, group, in his yeshiva, they became not religious. They left the yeshiva, they left the path. They became completely disconnected from anything Jewish. Years later, he meets this guy. He looks nothing like he did back then. The guy makes a point to walk up to the rabbi and says, listen, rabbi, you know, I just want you to know, you know, uh, I have major questions, major questions on emunah, on faith, on belief in God, on Judaism. 
And Rav Chaim looks at this, young, at this young man and he says to him, tell me, did you have the questions before you left or after you left? The boy says, the truth is, after. So the rabbi smiles at him and he says, then they weren't questions, they were answers. This famous story with Rav Chaim is so incisive, it's so instructive in understanding a person, understanding ourselves. The Egyptians had something that they did not want to believe. So give them a straw to grasp at that will allow them to maintain the belief system that they already bought into. And they will grab on something no matter how fine, no matter how simple, no matter how silly it seems. Let me prove this point to you if you don't believe me. I'd like to imagine a scenario where someone unfortunately has someone that's really not well. Doctors tell them they have no, they have no hope. All of a sudden he meets a witch doctor. The doctor says, here, look, I have uh, over here crushed berries. The guy, you know, the guy has a hole in his brain from one side to the other. You can see through the guy's head. And he says, berries are going to solve that. But at that point, what do people start doing? They hold on to anything. They'll try anything. What, why are they doing that? When we want something to be true, our brains have the power of fabricating, of weaving that into something that we can hold on to. And the proof of this is right here. People are dying left, right, and center. It's makat bechorot. And what are they going to say? It was 1201. You're a liar. God doesn't exist. If God existed, you'd be right. It's unbelievable. But we find echoes of this. The idea that people will believe, will force themselves to believe what they have already chosen to believe is something that we find spread all throughout the Torah. Our Chachamim tell us that when the brothers came down to Egypt, they saw Yosef and Yosef saw them and Yosef recognized them, but they did not recognize Yosef. Why? Says the Gemara, you know why? He recognized them and they didn't recognize him? You know why? Very simple. Because when he left them, he was the youngest of the brothers. When he left them, they already had Khatimat Zaken, says the Gemara. They already had a beard. He was young, he didn't have a beard yet. So now, when he had a beard, he recognized them because they still had the beards that they had back then. They didn't recognize him because he had a beard. And the Chachamim ask, I mean, this it's just insanely, insanely outlandish. One of the things we know about Yosef HaTzadik is that he looked identical to Yaakov. Like his twin. In fact, there are opinions that say that when Yosef saw his father's image in the house of Potiphar, what was he actually looking at? His own reflection in the, in the window. <laughs> That's how much he looked like Yaakov. To the point that he mistook himself for Yaakov. Let me ask you. Your name is Reuven, Shemon, Levi, Yehuda. Not all of them, just one of them. Your brother disappears. You didn't kill him, you sold him. He had dreams of being a king. Now here you are, all these years later, and here's this guy, 
He's a dead ringer for your dad. He looks exactly like Yosef. Could you imagine saying to yourself, it can't be him. He has a beard. I mean, do you understand how crazy that is? But my friends, that is what we're learning over here. This little straw, this possibility that will allow me to believe something that I want to believe in, or to not believe in something I don't want to believe in, is that powerful. My friends, if it's true that people will refuse to believe any evidence that you show them, again, we're living in this time right now. We're living through it right now. People denying everything. My favorite moment of this absolute insanity was when they were denying that they were even hostages. And then Hamas is talking about the hostages that they have. They're making videos, not us. And the hostages are returned. Some alive, some dead. There's a funeral for that hostage. No, 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 it's all propaganda. It's unbelievable. But my friends, in many ways we're not different than Hamas and in Paro in this regard. Chas we're entirely different to them in our actions. But in the concept, in the, in the powerful idea that people will decide what they want to believe, they will make up their mind, and then they will figure out what to do with the information that comes their way that is an inconvenient truth. They will figure out how to manipulate that and change that, and no matter how silly, no matter how insane that comes across, it doesn't matter. That's what we'll do. My friends, there's a famous expression in the Gemara. The Chachamim tell us, Rishaim, Afilu al pitchoshel gehinom, enam chuzrim b'tshuva. Gemara Eruvim. A Rasha that stands at the precipice of gehinam, right, still decides he's not going to do tshuva. Could you imagine? Let's just try and put ourselves in that position. You die, you go to Shamaim, they put you in the elevator. In the elevator, there's only two buttons. What do the buttons say on them? H and H. <laughs> the guy reaches out, he pushes the bottom button, you go down, takes a while, a long time. You can feel the elevator starting to get warm, right? You get out, you're right by the entrance of Gainam. And they ask you, do you want to do Teshuvah? And the guy's like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> He's sweating, right? You can smell burning, guys. His hair is starting to burn, right? You know? How could such a thing be? How could such a thing be? How could it be a Rasha, even in that moment, holds on? How could it be that you're in Egypt holding the dead Bechor? And you're still saying to Moshe, you're a liar. It was 12.01. Grasping at straws. The answer is, some of this is not even a free will choice. And I was struck by this concept, because I saw Nathan's face earlier registering surprise. And Nathan, you'll tell me if I guessed what you were saying right, what you meant with that face, right, if I'm right. How could the Gemara say 
that a rasha al petach gehinom doesn't do teshuvah. If he's al petach gehinom, he's already dead. If he's already dead, he has no free will. There's no yetzerara. So how could it be? Was that what your face was about? Aruch Hashem. How could it be that the rasha is choosing not to do teshuvah in the world of emet? In a place where he has no choice, not making any choices. You can't sin in Shamaim. You can't tell Hashem, listen, I'm ready to go to Gainam. If there, is there any way, is there like a golden arches in heaven? Can I grab one more cheeseburger before you stick me in there? You know, preferably if it could be medium rare, so that when I go in, it doesn't get over crispy before I. Is it possible to do Avon in Shamaim? The answer is. It's not a choice. You're right, there aren't choices there. He's not making a choice. But a person's consciousness, their neshama, their sechel, it's the same when they get to shamayim. The amount of Torah you learn in yeshiva shalmala is dependent on the Torah that you learned and consumed and toiled over and sweated over to be able to be koneh in this world. So my friends, this rasha, he's not denying teshuvah because he's making a choice at the entrance of Geinam. It's just the person that he's developed himself to be his whole life. So his mindset is no teshuvah. He gets the geinam, he's still in the mindset of no teshuvah. What gets that out of him? Getting into geinam, not the entrance of geinam. My friends, how many times is that our life? That only going through the worst geinam is capable of changing my mind, is capable of changing me as a person. Only experiencing the worst rock bottom do I actually bring about some form of change in my world. But petach geinam doesn't do it. My friends, how many things do you believe are just convenient truths for you? Can I give you the biggest, most convenient truth that we believe in? I'm doing as much as I can. That is the most convenient truth known to man. I'm learning as much Torah as I can. Rabbi, like, <laughs> I'm up to here, Rabbi. You know, I'm, I'm learning so much now. Giving enough, usually, not everybody. I know people that break this rule. Rabbi, I'm giving as much tzedakah as I can. No, you're not, usually. You're giving as much to that guy as you can whilst maintaining the lifestyle you chose, whilst, 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 etc., 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 etc. But are you giving as much to that guy as you can? Most people are not. I always share about that fellow in, in London who when we were doing a fundraiser came to me so sad and said to me, Rabbi, I really want to contribute. I don't have anything to contribute. I said, okay, so next time. I thought he was just giving me the excuse, telling me it's, now it's not a good time. And then he said, no, no, I came to tell you that I couldn't figure out what to do because I didn't have any money to give. So I canceled my cable sports package. And from now on, I'll just watch the game with my friends or wherever I go, whatever to watch the game. And the seven pounds, 62 pence that it cost me per month, I'd like to donate to to Chazak, to your organization, to teach Torah, and to bring people's neshamot closer to Hashem. When you say, I'm, I'm giving as much as I can, 
Is that what you mean? Nobody is, including me. I'm doing as many mitzvot as I can. No, you're not. That's the most convenient truth that we tell ourselves. And then, if someone challenges you on it, what do you do? You say, well, look, and look at this. And you bring all sorts of proofs. You know what those proofs are? 1201. Moshe, you're a liar. 1201. How many times you say somebody, you know, did you make shalom? Ah, Rabbi, I tried everything. You didn't try everything. No, Rabbi, you don't know. I called, I told the guy. I said, you know what he's angry about? Yes. I said, did you fix the problem? He says, no. I said, then you didn't do everything that you get. You just asked him to ignore the problem that he's angry about and make peace with you. I'm not shocked that he said no. You're still keeping him out. You're still denying him his portion of the business, of the inheritance. You still have yourself signed on as the executor. But I tried it, Rabbi, I tried everything. You don't know, I invited him for Shabbat dinner. He said no. Yeah, because he doesn't want to sit with someone that he thinks is a thief. He didn't try everything. And what do you use to prove it? I invited him to Shabbat dinner. 1201. This is the nature of human beings. We decide what we want to think. We decide, and even really important life decisions, we'll decide based on some bias or some desire to think, and then we'll justify our own thinking patterns. I'll never forget this. I, um, I had a student in London, I think I, may, I mentioned this before. I had a student in London, um, brilliant, brilliant student. Anyway, kid could have gotten into any university, you know, I think, and he actually did. He got into, uh, it was Oxford or Cambridge, one of the two. And I asked him where he was going. I said, are you, are you taking your place in Oxford? He said, no. I said, are you going here? No, no, no. I said, but you got it. You have all these offers. You're all accepted. Where are you going in the end? He said, I'm going to Birmingham. Now, Birmingham is a, is a good university, but it's not like the Ivy League or other ones that he'd been accepted to. So he's giving me this reason why he's going, and this reason why he's going. And you know, there's just more Jewish life in Birmingham. I know this boy doesn't really care that much about Jewish life. This reason, and that reason, and this reason, and that reason. He goes, oh, and, and also, my girlfriend's going to Birmingham. <laughs> I was like, why did we waste all this time when you could have just led with that? Once his girlfriend was going to Birmingham, the guy could have got accepted to Yeshiva Shel Mala. It doesn't make a difference. Elon Musk could have hired him, made him CEO of Tesla, straight out of college, out of high school. He could have been appointed CEO of Google. He was going to Birmingham University. He's chasing his girlfriend. Okay, I have no problem. And you know what the funny thing is? Does it matter that he's fooling me? It doesn't matter. In truth, we were just having a conversation. I was just thinking about talking about the weather because it was London and it's always the same. Cloudy with a chance of showers. Right? Right? So, like, I told, we were talking about this. I was not all that invested in where he was going. I don't even care. 
But he feels the need to lie and lie and lie and say this and say this and say this. You know why? Because he's trying to convince himself. He's talking to me. But who's he actually talking to? Himself. Now we revisit the story of Mitzrayim. Imagine being so stubborn that you held on to these Jews against every moral and ethical qualm that you had. And then Moshe comes and says, this shouldn't be this way, and God's going to save the Jews, and you guys are going to pay the price, and you shut it down, and you didn't believe it. And you said, Moshe, you're a liar. Who's this God? Eh, it doesn't exist. And in the second Makkah, and the third, and the fourth, and you just said, Moshe, you're a liar. Moshe, you're a liar. But now, my friends, what price have you paid for saying those words? Moshe, you're a liar. You've paid for that with the price of, a, of the dead firstborn that you're holding in your arms. At this point, you're so invested in the lie you're telling yourself. You cannot stop telling yourself that lie. My friends, this is true. This lie is true in business. It's true in spirituality. It's true when it comes to the way we behave. It's true when we look back at mistakes that we've made with such regret because we've paid such a price for them. The only way to protect our, our hearts from the sorrow of that is by saying, it's not my fault, it was that person's fault. And to back it up with every ludicrous claim. And when someone confronts you with the truth, what do you say? I can't handle the truth. Moshe Badai. And no matter how thin that straw is, I'll grab hold of it. My friends, the antidote to this is to consciously invest in becoming an honest broker of the truth. A person who's so committed to the truth, in the truth that they talk, in the truth that they share, in the truth that they see, being open to having your mind changed, allowing yourself to say at least once a day, I was wrong, I was wrong, I was wrong. Developing a comfort level with admitting you're wrong, with saying I'm sorry, is so healthy that it pays dividends because it protects you from the biggest mistake of all, the mistake that you cannot admit is coming your way because you're so invested. You put in already a million dollars into this investment, you can't help yourself, there's another $100,000 bill, you know you shouldn't, but you can't help yourself. The sunk cost, fallacy. So you throw another 100000 You're gambling, and you gambled, and you lost $100, $200, $300, $400, says, you still in? And the guy says, look, I lost so many times in a row. Odds have to be in my favor. And you throw good money after bad. And we throw good effort after bad. And you don't want to admit that the relationship's over. So you hang in, even though someone is asking you, what? there's no relationship here at all. She's not committing to you. He's not committing to you at all. Well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. What are you not sure about? You know what you're not sure about? You're not sure if you're ready to admit that all the money and all the time and all the effort and all the heart you put into something was for nothing. 
But you know what it costs to stay in that relationship that is not a relationship? More time and more money. If what hurts is that you're losing time and money and effort and emotional availability, then recognize that not accepting this truth is costing you more time, effort, heart, emotional availability. So many things are solved when a person can teach themselves to be honest with what it is that they are seeing and not run around pointing fingers and saying, Moshe Badai, my wife's Badai, my father's Badai, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my coworker, everybody's a liar. You know the only person who tells the truth in this world? Anna. Hashem should protect us from ourselves. Baruch Amen.